Welcome to the Seven Hats Podcast. My name is Yuval Selig, and I've been on the entrepreneurial roller coaster for over 20 years. I've experienced it all throughout my journey the grind, burnout, failure, and ultimately, success. The turning point for me was realizing that building a successful company is meaningless if you neglect the other significant areas of your life. So today, I'm inviting you to join me on an adventure through those seven areas, what I call the seven hats. Every week, my guests and I will drop valuable insights and pearls of wisdom, helping, motivating, and inspiring you to get your seven hats in order and deliver real impact with meaning. So let's get going. Welcome to the first episode of the Seven Hats Podcast. My name is Yuval Selick, and I'm your host. Let's start with a quick preview of who this podcast is for and what it's all about. The Seven Hats is a show for entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs who desperately want to impact the world around them, and of course, leave a legacy. But more importantly, while trying to attain success in business and solve the world's problems, they also want to live their best life. They don't want to succeed in business and then ask that dreaded question, is this all there is? So if you're listening and want to succeed in the game of life and all the wonders of living your best life, you will need to spend time focusing on your seven critical areas of life. And I call these the seven hats. So what are they? Each hat represents one of the roles you play on your journey towards fulfilling your life's purpose. And we'll go deeper into these in a future episode. But for now, let's take a look at each role. Your role for hat number one is what I call the soul. It's the relationship you have with yourself. And as you can imagine, I also call it the golden hat. Golden because it's the only hat that, in my opinion, is required to achieve success in the rest of the six hats entirely. You can't give what you don't have inside to share, so we will pay special attention to this golden hat. Hat number two, you're the athlete. It's your health and fitness hat. Hat number three, the servant. And it's all about the relationships you have with others. Hat number four, the entrepreneur. And that's the hat when you change the world for the better. Hat number five, the investor hat, your finances. Hat number six, the philanthropist. And this is where you give back and contribute to helping others have a better life. And the final hat, hat number seven, you are the seeker, where you connect to something greater than yourself. And this hat is your spirituality hat. So there you have it, the seven hats. And I invite you to be part of the Seven Hatters community. You know, the question I ask myself so many times is, how can I serve you? Well, as I stated earlier in my intro, I ran the rat race. I burned the candle at both ends for so many years. I burned out and I bottomed out. And now I want to bring my knowledge and experience alongside some incredible guests who also succeeded in one or more of their hats. And now, they look to give back to the tribe as well. Now, I give you my word that my guests won't only speak of their success. I plan on digging into their failures, their struggles, and the problems that they faced along their journey. Listen, I feel that there are so many lessons in the struggles. I've listened to too many podcasts 
where the guest typically talks about their resume for most of the show. Listen, you can get that on LinkedIn, for God's sakes. So let's dig deep and learn from the struggles and accelerate your growth 10x as a result. And for each show, I promise to provide you with gold nuggets and actionable steps that you'll be able to take away and apply to your life for each of your seven hats. We will discuss the latest research on self-love and acceptance. We will discuss relationship advice for how to be in a relationship with an entrepreneur and succeed. We will talk about the latest health and fitness trends in healthy eating, intermittent fasting, and exercise. And of course, we will talk about running and growing a business successfully, and so much more as we uncover the rest. Now, please make sure to listen to future episodes where I will go deeper into each hat, plus reveal my impact framework so that you can succeed in transforming who you need to become to achieve all your hairy audacious goals as we take our journey together. But for now, if we are going to spend some time together each week, you should probably know my story. So this is my Hello World moment. And I wanted to start it off by telling you a quick anecdote about none other than Steve Jobs. See, a few years ago, I watched Steve Jobs on a rare YouTube video introducing the first Macintosh. This event took place 37 years ago on January 24th, 1984. I was just 11 years old, probably riding my bike with my friends. But it was an historic moment for computers back then. And what caught my eye was when Steve uttered the following words to an audience-filled auditorium. He said, and I quote, Now we've done a lot of talking about Macintosh recently, but today, for the first time ever, I'd like to have Macintosh speak for itself. End quote. Now imagine that. A computer back in 1984 actually spoke to an audience and said, Hello world, here I am. I'm here to help you achieve greatness in your life. I'm here to make you think differently. So, here I am, entrepreneurs. I'm here to help you achieve greatness in your life. I'm here to make you think differently. So why do I want to put myself out there? Venture out into the unknown again? Put in all the hard work in birthing a podcast when there are so many out there? And my answer lies in my question. It's because of my why. What is my why? We should probably get to my backstory first so you can get some context around it. In 1972, my parents escaped communist Russia and headed to Israel for safe refuge. My dad was 22 and my mom only 18, pregnant with me. I moved 24 times in my life and I guess this was my first official move. My dad is an entrepreneur and the hardest working man I know. He's a luthier and builds and repairs violins, violas, and cellos. My mom, the sweetest and most gentle soul, and his number one supporter. You know, years later, I finally understood how important her support was to his growth as an entrepreneur. My grandparents, who immigrated to Israel just a couple years before my parents, they were my most influential life travelers. They are no longer with us, but left an impact that I hope to share with all those that I touch. My grandma Ida was the most gentle and loving soul I have ever met in my life. She loved her family so much, but had an extraordinary place in her heart for me since I was the firstborn. We had a running joke in the family that went like this. Ida loves all the kids, but Yuval is special. And everyone knew it. 
They just accepted it after a while, including my poor sister. My grandpa Isaac was my protector and my hero. And as far back as I remember, my parents, mainly my dad's sole focus was work. My grandparents raised me in my early childhood days, and I believe I wouldn't be able to embody hat number one, the golden hat, the self-love hat, without their love and belief in me. My first significant move was when I was nine. My father received an invite from Isaac Stern, a very famous violinist, to travel to the U.S. and work. This move was a huge opportunity for our family, and so we went to the U.S. of A. I remember the moment we arrived at the airport to fly out of Israel and had to cross that gate to get to the terminal. My grandparents were standing behind us, crying, knowing that life as we knew it was about to change. For me, this was the most devastating and profound period of my childhood. As my parents held my hand and walked to the gate, I forced my way loose from my mom's grip and ran back to my grandma, weeping just to get that one last hug. And that hug will stay with me for the rest of my life. Our Boeing 747 landed on the JFK tarmac. We finally landed in New York. And for the first few months, while my parents got situated, we stayed in a tiny New York apartment that my dad's friend graciously provided as a refuge. See, what I didn't appreciate back then was that my parents left their haven, their home in Israel, the country that took them in when they escaped anti-Semitic discrimination in Russia. See, I was a kid and made it all about me. And I rebelled because I lost my identity. I left my grandparents, my family, friends, school, playground, the food I loved. Yes, I was a foodie back then as well. More on that in future episodes. And I made it all about me. But I didn't realize what my parents were going through. They were kids themselves, with no money, no security blanket, in an unknown country. They didn't speak a word of English. And in truth, had very few people they can rely on to get by. My parents were risk-takers, and they took risks to try to provide a better life for their family. They are the 1% crazy. They are entrepreneurs. And the risks, the pain, hardship, intense work ethic, and of course, their can-do-at-whatever-cost attitude, is why I have the opportunity to a blessed life and the chance to go after my dreams, become an entrepreneur myself, start two successful companies, and speak with you today on this podcast. So, let's get back to the story. We left our temporary stay in Manhattan and moved to our first apartment in the outskirts of Forest Hills, Queens. My dad got a job at a prestigious instrument repair shop by the name of Jacques Francais in Manhattan. And my mom was working as a cleaning lady just to make a few bucks so we can get by. As a kid, I wasn't aware of what my parents were going through when my mom took me along with her as she cleaned toilets inside million-dollar mansions in Forest Hills. I wasn't considerate of the fact that my dad had to wake up at 5 a.m. so that he could take two trains to the city and work till 7 or 8 at night before taking two trains back home and working a little longer, before finally crashing at midnight only to do it all over again the next day. After a few years at Jack Francais' workshop, my dad made the leap and headed off on his own. He was now a bona fide entrepreneur. No more paycheck, no more security blanket. Now it was up to him and my mom to ensure that the family was safe and secure. My years leading up to high school were pretty ordinary. No drama, no real struggle, other than the usual teenage issues we all face. But the one thing that stands out was the lack of quality time my sister and I spent with my parents. 
When my parents first arrived, they had the mindset, the purpose, the commitment, and readiness to take action on a single dream of theirs, and that was to live the American dream. They wanted a house, a car, and they wanted to travel and so on. But in pursuing this dream, they did what most entrepreneurs do and what I ultimately did in following in their footsteps. They hyper-focused on their business and careers. And as a result, they didn't have enough time for the other areas of their life. If you ask my sister and I, the one thing that was missing from our childhood growing up in Queens, New York, we would both say, our parents' time with us. Don't get me wrong. I'm not crying abuse or saying, poor me, I didn't have my parents around. They were actually around. We took a couple of vacations to Florida or upstate New York each year. My dad was actually home 24-7, and my mom, she was at home at night making us dinner. They were physically there, but emotionally wrapped up in their work. My dad was in his home workshop, but almost never at home. I will say, though, that actually my previous statement is not 100% true. I did see my dad, but only when he asked me to help with the chores, rebuild stuff around the house, clean leaves, mow the lawn, and renovate the house whenever possible. See, he taught me everything I know about hard work ethic and how to fix shit around the house. If anything, my wife, Ala, is thankful for those lessons learned. I remember one time we were tiling our hallway floor with black and white checker tiles. I placed two tiles next to each other and forgot to measure the corners to be precisely parallel. I was about to put the next two tiles down, and he raised his voice with disappointment. And at that moment, he taught me a lesson I never forgot till this day. He said, son, if you place those tiles down, you will be so slightly off from them being parallel, and you might not care enough to adjust them. But if you do, when you reach the end of the hallway, you will be off by inches, and that's a problem you won't be able to ignore. See, I didn't fully understand that lesson about how it applies to business until I started my own company, and it was clear as day. If you ignore the little things that seem trivial, they will ultimately grow into significant issues you eventually won't be able to overlook. See, I appreciate spending time with my dad slaving over household chores and remodeling efforts over the years. I learned so many of these beautiful lessons that helped me achieve success in my life. And I hope that over our time together, I can pass those life lessons on to you as well. My high school years were a bit of a blur, primarily ninth grade. My parents decided to buy a house in Hunter, a tiny ski town in upstate New York. Currently, the population is around 2,700 people. However, I could swear the population back then was probably half of that. So, instead of staying in Queens and moving on to high school with my elementary school friends, I instead was forced to attend Hunter, Tannersville, Middle School, slash High School. Yes, you heard that right. Grades 7 to 12, all in one building, with only 150 students in total. As a comparison, just my ninth grade class in Forest Hills High School, where I should have gone, would have been around 1,000 students. So, my high school experience started with me entering a ninth grade homeroom class looking all cool with my Sony Walkman headset, standing out like a sore thumb to a group of 15 kids who grew up together since they were probably born. Imagine a city kid coming into a new tribe and completely being shunned. I was bullied, 
got into verbal and physical altercations too many times to count, couldn't make any friends, and thereby zoned out for the rest of the year. I began to withdraw and rebel, so much so that it forced my parents to move back to Queens so I can attend Forest Hills High School, where I should have gone in the first place. I share this with you to highlight the lesson I learned that year. We are all humans. We crave to belong. We want to be part of a tribe. That's the way it is, whether we like it or not. We need to matter. And when we don't, we die a little death inside. And that's the way it was a million years ago when we walked the earth, and it is still as much a truism now. We need each other's support. And this is why we entrepreneurs need to assemble, help each other succeed, build a tribe. That's how we will thrive and survive. See, they say it's lonely at the top. And I agree that few of us are called to live this entrepreneurial life. But I'm afraid I have to disagree that it has to be lonely. We need to congregate and support each other. As a side note, I have to say, looking back, I'm aware that my time in Hunter, where I experienced so much rejection and pain, it really shaped part of my insane drive and desire to succeed as an entrepreneur. As much as it was a painful period in my life, it also contributed to so many lessons learned and ultimately freedom. The rest of my high school years were great. I was back with my friends, chasing girls, and having fun. But my senior year, I was faced with a crossroads. The school of my choice, Binghamton University, was out of my league. I wasn't particularly a great student. I was average. I didn't do well in my SATs, and I graduated with a 79-grade point average. I knew this moment was coming, though. I didn't put the effort required, but I was determined to go to Binghamton. It was the school of choice. But needless to say, a crappy SAT score and a 79-grade point average were not even close to their standards. My acceptance letter, yes, letter, not letters, came in, and my only option was an unknown community college. My second choice school was Queens College. And they rejected my application because I didn't meet their criteria by only one frickin' point, since they required at least an 80-grade point average, and I had a 79. So I pondered hard on my next move and came up with a plan of action. For the first time, I understood that I was at a junction. Either I get serious about attaining the success that my parents risked everything for, or I don't. So I had no option in my mind. I had to find a way to appeal my Queens College application. So what did I do? I went back to one of my favorite history teachers and asked him to raise my grade by just two points so that my overall grade point average can get to 80. I knew in my heart that I could transfer to Binghamton in just a year if I do well at Queens College. And I guess my graveling skills were convincing enough. I got my teacher to raise my score and headed off to Queens College. A year later, with a lot of hard work, with a 3.7 GPA, Binghamton accepted me as a transfer. My teacher will never know how his belief in me and his kindness in my time of need changed my life forever. And that's why it's so important to be there for each other, to support one another, even if it may feel insignificant at that moment, because you never know the life that you're about to change forever. Binghamton was a great school, but depressingly gray, I have to say. I don't think I saw the sun for more than a few days a year. Nevertheless, it was a great experience. I had a lot of fun. My longtime friends from elementary school, Chris and Oleg, were there with me. 
and we were all in the fraternity A Pi and having a great time. And to top it all off, because of Binghamton's reputation, I was able to land a fantastic consulting gig right out of school. I'll never forget reading my acceptance letter from Quasha Lipton, a benefits consulting firm situated near the George Washington Bridge in New Jersey, overlooking Manhattan. I was earning $33,000 a year back in 1996. That was an incredible achievement for me. I worked my entire life part-time through school, but this was my first real job. Quasha Lipton was my first real opportunity to climb the corporate ladder, and I was smelling success. The six years I spent at Quasha Lipton shaped me as a business leader. I was privileged in learning from so many exceptional individuals who I considered mentors. It was June 3, 1996, and my alarm went off at 6 a.m. My first day at Quasha Lipton. Excited, I woke out of bed to shower and put my brand new suit that I purchased specifically for this occasion. My two cats, Chip and Dale, they were looking at me with deep curiosity as to why I was awake so early in the morning. I arrived for orientation. And as I entered the gorgeous building overlooking Manhattan, I still remember the pings and dings of the George Rhodes Great Bulk Contraption roller coaster sculpture in the lobby. After completing the initial paperwork, HR directed me to a dedicated classroom for my six-week training class with Tom. I remember walking into the room and feeling this eerie feeling. Tom's reputation preceded him. He was known as a ball buster, and I was warned ahead of time. I can tell you for sure that it was the most grueling and challenging class I have ever experienced. And to tell you the truth, I wouldn't have changed it for the world. See, Tom was a character, but he was probably one of the most strategic and intelligent guys I have ever met. Tom drank about 12 cans of Pepsi each day, so the guy was wired for most of the day. But he challenged you. He poked fun at you. He did everything he could do to make you uncomfortable, anxious, and insecure. See what Tom did? He built tough skin. Six weeks felt like six months, but I finally passed all of the assignments and was given my first client list. And my very first client was Bank of America, one of Quasha Lipton's largest clients. The funny thing was that no one in my graduating class got assigned a large client. They were all tiny. I was excited at first, however, started becoming very frustrated once I understood the workload. Everyone in my class was leaving at 5 p.m., and I'm knee-deep in work till 8, 9 each night. And not until years later did I realize how much of a blessing it was being assigned such a prestigious account. And here's why. Chris Kyoto was my immediate supervisor, and Eric Horowitz was his boss. Eric reported to Michael Sternklar at the top. These guys were business gurus. If I could go back in time, I would have paid to learn under these mentors. Chris was one of the smartest and hardworking guys I have ever met. He was young at the time. However, one of the best managers I have ever encountered. He expected much of his team, but he was leading them by empowering them. Eric, he was funny. The likable character in the group. The life of the party. But Eric also had a very serious side. You didn't want to mess with him. See, one evening, I remember it was 2 a.m., and I could not reconcile Bank America's monthly reconciliation. I was frustrated, exhausted, and about to cry to tell you the truth. So Eric walks by my desk, and I break down. I ask him if I can go home and get some sleep and finish the reconciliation the next day. 
I will never forget the lesson he taught me in the next two sentences he uttered. He said, Yuval, no problem. Let me call Bank America and tell them that 50,000 of their employees won't get their benefits reconciled because you're tired. So sure, go home. I'll let them know the news in the morning. You can guess the outcome of that conversation. So at 4 a.m., I reconciled with pride and a smile on my face. These two sentences shape both of my startups and are ingrained in our culture. But Eric also had a soft spot as well. One day, years later, when I was a manager of a group of 12, I felt undervalued and underappreciated during a performance review. I worked so hard for so many years, and I expected a raise deserving of the value I added, which I didn't get. And by chance, I bumped into Eric in the hallway and asked him for a $5,000 raise. And the first words out of his mouth were, why do you deserve the raise? Why are you so special? And I looked him straight in the eyes and explained my efforts and dedication to my clients and team. He smiled, took a second to breathe, and then he said, okay, no problem, you got it. And that was another lesson in fairness and compassion for your employees that I will never forget. I also want to give a shout out to Michael Sternklar for his leadership. He and I interacted because he led the Bank of America relationship. And I have to say, I learned so much from the way he led from the top. He was an extremely likable and relatable leader. He could be one of us. And that stuck with me over the years. And that's how I lead my team. He taught me that your position gives you no right to think that you're better than anyone else on the team. He taught me how to remove that egoic side when leading. Some of my favorite lessons came from watching him lead the M&A efforts when PricewaterhouseCoopers purchased Quasha. Then a year later, Coopers and Libran. Then a year later, Mellon Bank. And I believe there was an internet startup called UNFI somewhere in the mix. Another lesson I learned came from my boot camp years. Since Quasha Lipton was a consulting firm back in 1996, we had benefits. Plenty of them. Unlimited soft drinks a menu with what must have been 30 local restaurants that would deliver dinner if you stayed past six, which I had more often than not, and that accounted for my weight gain during that time. But we had an awesome gym in the building with a full-time trainer, Bill Coyle, who kicked everybody's ass. I never forgot Bill. He taught me perseverance and dedication as we assembled at 6 a.m. each morning for boot camp. He expected us there, rain, shine, negative 18-degree freezing temperatures, snow, whatever. If we skipped the training, he would be all over our ass. And I was scared of him, so I showed up. Tuesday, September 11, 2001, started out as a perfectly bright, beautiful morning in New York. I arrived in my office around 8 a.m. that morning as usual. It was just another day, until it wasn't. Around 9 a.m., I started hearing the office gossip. One of my teammates told me that heavy black smoke was billowing out of the Twin Towers. I didn't think anything of it at that moment and continued working. But a few more minutes passed, and I couldn't avoid the office chaos. So I walked towards the parking garage, which had a clear view of the city and the two towers. Now, I don't know if I can describe the moment I first saw the smoke and fire, then the second plane hitting the second tower, and of course, the most surreal moment when the towers crumbled to the ground. The entire office stood there in shock. We kept on saying to each other, this isn't real. This can't be fucking happening. If anyone visited the towers, they would understand just how massive they were. 
Each building took a whole city block. How could they just disappear into thin air? And that moment changed me, as it did most people. See, I remember leaving the office around 10 a.m. in disbelief and headed over to my cousin's house to watch the news. We were in a dreamlike state over the next few days, watching CNN pretty much 24-7, and all we kept on seeing are hysterical family members holding photos of their loved ones, asking, begging, pleading if anyone had seen them. All they needed to know was if their loved ones were still alive. The whole thing was brutal to witness and heart-wrenching. And over the next few months, the conversation centered around how things would never be the same. And of course, they felt different, very different. The streets in New York were gloomy, dark, and empty. Interestingly, now in 2021, we're going through a very similar experience with COVID-19. The conversations are all about how life will never be the same as we knew it. For a while, when the pandemic hit and the lockdowns were in place, the streets in New York were dark, gloomy, and empty, just like they were in 2001. But history can help provide us with a sense of identity. The good news is that things were never the same after 9-11, and they won't post-COVID-19. Every major event in human history changes us as a people. The most horrifying events challenge us. They allow us to tap into our greatness, resilience, and show us what we're capable of as a species. And as a result, we change the world around us. June of 2001, my parents informed me that they have decided to sell their upstate New York home and move to Los Angeles. As I mentioned earlier, my parents moved approximately every two to three years since I was nine years old. And under normal circumstances, a call from my parents letting me know that they are moving was no big deal. It was business as usual. However, this was a different move. Our home has always been on the East Coast. That was our identity since we arrived at JFK back in 1982. But a move to the West Coast was a big deal. I personally never traveled west of Chicago. I always joked that our family should have settled in the moving business because my dad regularly made the family and some friends along the way pack and move our entire home, opting not to hire professional moving services. So once again, my sister and I were enrolled, I mean agreed, to help them pack the moving truck and assist in driving the cross-country trek to Los Angeles. The day arrived, August 2002, our blue Volvo station wagon filled to the rim and the truck was fully loaded and ready to go. My mom and sister in the Volvo, while my dad and I driving the moving truck. Now, if you've never made a cross-country trip, I highly recommend it as a bucket list item. The U.S. is such a beautiful place, and every state, city, and county that we drove by providing a glimpse into the lives of those living there. It's interesting how each place has its own energy, its own frequency, and therefore it affects those that live there. And I felt it as soon as we drove towards the West Coast. Energetically, something happened. I knew deep down that it was never going to be the same, and that was a good thing. I remember one event so clearly as we were driving on Route 10 towards Los Angeles. I looked over towards my dad and said, Dad, holy shit, this is New Jersey with palm trees and beautiful sunny weather. And in that split second, I made the boldest decision of my life. I said, Dad, I'm moving. What? Everyone was shocked. I was about to leave a corporate job where I was a rising star. 
I was about to leave lifelong friends in the only place that I have known since nine years old. And trust me, my friends tried to stop the move. I can't tell you how many times I heard that everyone in LA is fake and only those in the East Coast are authentic and real. And no matter what everyone said, the shift had occurred on Route 10 on that August day in 2002. And you know what? A month later, I was packed, ticketed hand, no job, no plans, just a gleam of hope and the sense of adventure for the next chapter of my life. This concludes the story of my East Coast adventure. But wait till you experience my days on the West Coast. Like my dad, I moved to a foreign place to start all over and make something of myself. I marry a Hollywood actress, become a bona fide entrepreneur, lose everything, hit rock bottom, and then I built it all back. There are so many stories and lessons to come, so make sure to listen to episode two of my West Coast adventure that brought me here to this very moment speaking with you now. One final note, make sure to hit that subscribe button and leave a review. It really goes a long way and I would really appreciate it. And don't forget, sharing is caring. So please take a screenshot of this episode and share it on Facebook, Instagram stories, or Snapchat and tag 7 Hats. So for now, I will bid you farewell. And until next time, my name is Yuval Selleck and I tip my hat off to you.